0: Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm chapter 119, verses 9 through 16. That reading may be found on the Pew Bible on page 512. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how desperately we need the work of your spirit in our midst. How desperately today we need to understand the work of your spirit in our midst as it relates to your holy word. Give us grace today, Father. To know and hear and receive your word. And may it be to us the word implanted which is able to save our souls. May it be to us the word through which Jesus Christ and upon which Jesus Christ builds his church. Bless us in that today, our Father, we plead with you. In Jesus' name, amen. The most important part of any building project is the foundation. Any builder will tell you that. Everything else rests on the foundation. The building can't be bigger than the foundation allows. It can't be stronger than the foundation supports. It can't be expected to stand firm unless it rests on something solid. You know, Jesus used that metaphor in a simple illustration that he gave to his disciples right after he preached to them the word we call the Sermon on the Mount. He told his listeners that anybody who receives the words that he was saying and acted on them so as to build his life on them, that person would be compared to somebody who builds his house upon a rock, a stone foundation. And To do otherwise, Jesus said, would be compared to being a person who builds on sand. A house built on rock stands up in a storm, and a house on the sand goes splat, we all know. Now, Jesus used that same idea again in a more pointed metaphor. A little bit later in his ministry in Matthew's Gospel, he asked his disciples who he thought they thought he was and peter boldly said that he believed jesus was the christ the messiah the son of the living god and jesus told peter that he was blessed to know that because that knowledge that truth had been revealed to peter not by people but by god the father and then he said peter you're you're a rock, and on this church, on this rock I'm going to build my church. And what he meant, of course, was not Peter the man, but Peter the man to whom God had revealed the truth and who had received it, the rock of Revelation. Jesus was planning on building his church on the truth of God revealed from heaven. He was planning on building on the rock. And that's why the Bible goes on to tell us that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. Who are they but the people through whom God revealed his truth from heaven? That's why Jesus is called the cornerstone of the foundation of the church. He is the truth revealed from heaven. The church is built upon revealed truth of which Jesus Christ is the essence. The believers in the church live lives built upon the revealed truth of which Jesus Christ is the essence. So I ask you this morning, Christ Memorial Church, is our church built that way? Is your life built that way? Would you like to know how to check and see whether it is? The stakes are pretty big because a life not built on that foundation is a life that Jesus says goes splat in a storm, (coughs) a storm of judgment. A church not built on that foundation goes splat in the storm. These are frankly already stormy times. You need to know that your foundation is good. Now if you're here this morning and you're apart from Christ, I have additional news for you. You don't have a foundation for life right now, but the good news is you could walk away with one today. Today. If you will hear and receive the word of God. Now this morning, as has been said, we're launching a four-part series called Our Next 30 Years. A series that attempts to identify what are the core commitments we have as a church. Which we must maintain if we are to continue for another 30 years or more as a faithful and healthy church. Today we're considering our commitment to the Bible. This is foundational. Now I commend to you the outline that's in your bulletin. The theme of the message that's printed there is a healthy church must be committed to the Bible as the only guide for faith and life because it is the very word of God through which he saves and keeps us. Now there's a lot on that outline. I always think the outlines can be helpful. I think today it might really save you from losing your mind if you, if you just kind of see where we're going. Uh, because in this outline, I'm going to lay out a doctrine, and then I'm going to name what I think are some of the necessary implications of that doctrine. And we're going to put it under three big truths, that the Bible is God's word, Some of the implications. The Bible is how we know truth. Some implications of that. And the Bible is how we live and grow. Some implications of that. So, first we're going to talk about our need to be committed to the Bible as God's word. Now, just for the sake of clarity, without going into the history of how these things came to be, when I say the Bible, I mean the 66 books of the holy bible the 39 old testament books and 27 new testament books that is the protestant and evangelical consensus across the board since the reformation formerly but since long before that in practice i understand that the roman catholic bible contains some books that are called the apocrypha which the reformers agreed had value as literature but didn't qualify as part of the standard of the Holy Scripture. I'm not going into that issue today about the canon of Scripture. When we say the Bible is the Word of God, do we mean the Bible contains every word God ever spoke? No. Do we mean that the Bible contains every word Jesus ever spoke? No. What we mean is that the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, are the inspired and authoritative and all sufficient Word of God written down for us. And there are two Scriptures that especially help us to see this foundational doctrine the one is 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 to 17 now I'm not going to be asking you to turn very often that's why I put all those verses in your outline we don't have time for you to turn to them all you turn as fast as you want to to any of them you want to but I'm going to read some of them and others I'm just going to refer to I'm going to read this one 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14 and following says but as for you and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We call that the inspiration of the scriptures. Now, inspired might not mean what you think it means. When we hear the word inspired, we tend to think about somebody being given a nudge to create something. But God didn't create the Bible by giving human authors a nudge by Breathing some ideas into them. The text says that the scriptures are breathed out by God. The scripture comes out of his mouth. It comes out of him. That's the sole basis of its profitability. It is, taken as a whole, a God-given word. That's what makes it good for teaching mankind what's true and warning us what's false and correcting us from what's wrong and training us in what's right this god-breathed word is alone able to bring people to completion in salvation in god's eyes able make people able to do everything god says is good while avoiding everything god says is bad in the context of second timothy it's particularly the thing that's able to make the pastor able to help his people but it applies across the board And let's be clear, what is the Bible about? It has to be said that the Bible is about one thing, but that it touches upon and speaks to everything. The one thing is God's salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything God has said to mankind is about his gift of life to the creature. And that life turns, about, turns out to be all about his son, Jesus Christ. That is why Hebrews chapter 1 starts off this way. We had a recent series in Hebrews. It says, long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom Also, he created the world. So the sum of God's word to us, in all the various ways that he previously employed to tell us, is that God created everything and appointed his own son as the heir of everything and sent his son to be our savior so that we may share in his life and everything that's his. So when Christ came, that was the final word from God. In these last days he has spoken to us in his son. Christ came and accomplished all that God intended for our salvation from beginning to end. And it is finished. There's nothing left for God to do to save us and give us life in Christ. Therefore, there's nothing left for God to say with respect to all of that. Jesus is the final word. And God, by his wise and gracious design, has caused the whole of his word, the word of Christ, to be committed to writing for us. Now, he caused it to be written down all along the way, we learn. And after Christ came, he used the apostles as instruments to write down the rest of it. When they were finished, it was finished. So the God-breathed scriptures are the final and full word of Christ. Now, that's the doctrine we're asserting. It has a lot of implications. One of them is that the Bible is God himself speaking. You know, Jeremiah chapter 1, very informative. God comes to the prophet, and, he, and, he, and the, the Bible records, it says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, and what did God say? What did the word of the Lord say? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and appointed you and so on. So that when the word of the Lord said it, God said it. You see? And what's more, he went on and appointed the prophet, he said right there in that chapter, to speak for him. He said, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And when the prophet speaks, therefore God speaks. When the words of the prophet are written down, God is still speaking those words. First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul bears this out. He said that his preaching to the Thessalonians was received for what it was. Not man's words, but God's word which works in the believers. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 9 remind us that when the scripture speaks, it's still God speaking, it's very profound in Hebrews 3 and 4. He said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's his voice that's heard and must be heeded. And he's talking about a word that came by the Spirit in the scriptures written long ago. That's what he's talking about in Hebrews 3 and 4. Today, if you hear his voice. His voice is what is heard, and it's in the Scripture. Another implication is that God only speaks in the Scripture. Second Timothy chapter 3, again, we have read those verses. God's inspired word says everything that completes or perfects a believer. It enables every good work. It's all here. No other word is needed. To imagine that God speaks somewhere else is to imagine that another word is needed to complete salvation. And therefore, these verses are really kind of overstating themselves. In that case, the scripture would be good for most good works and the near completion of salvation. God speaks in the scriptures, and God's power is here. It's in the scriptures. This must not be underestimated. You must understand that the word of God is, I like to call it, effectual. That's the $20 word. It means when God speaks, things happen. His word makes stuff happen. More than information comes across when God speaks. God's words cause the change of things in power. That's why Genesis chapter 1 is so profound. How did God create the heavens and the earth? In the beginning was the word, John says, all things came into being by him. But what does Genesis 1 tell us? God said, let there be light. And then there was light. That is profound. You just have to think about that for a while. And in in Hebrews chapter 4, in a context where the author is insisting that God's voice is still being heard when the scriptures that were given long ago are asserted, that Hebrew author, that inspired author, tells us what this word of God is. He says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When you hear God's voice in the scriptures, it is still living and active and powerful. It still discerns men's thoughts and intentions of heart. It still lays us bare to Him. And the implication of that is that the Bible is sufficient for you. 2 Peter chapter 1 leads off to remind us that the only word from God there is, is the only word from God we need. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Did you catch all that? Everything pertaining to life and godliness, through knowing Him, that's what the knowledge of Him means, knowing God in Christ, which knowing has been granted through promises, that's God's word, the word of promise, with the result That the one who believes the promise partakes of God's life. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the word. That is all we can ever need. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible is also how we know truth. Therefore, taking it to the second point, the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, we have to conclude that the Bible is how we know truth. The doctrine I'm asserting is that truth comes only from God by revelation. Now, this is a deep well of Bible teaching. We can only sip from it this morning. I hope you'll get a little thirsty for some of it and you'll go and investigate these things more. In John chapter 17, Jesus Praise his high priestly prayer. And he asserts that the definition of life itself is to know God and to know Jesus Christ, whom God sent. And he identifies the people who know him as the ones to whom he gave God's word. And the ones who by faith have kept God's word that's how he praised I gave them their your word they kept your word that means they believed it and so in that context he calls on the father to keep those disciples of his to keep them to keep them in his name and when he says those disciples he clarifies not just these ones right here but all the ones who will believe later because of their word cuz they'll keep transmitting that word and there'll be more disciples father keep them in your name keep them set apart for you and how will god do that jesus made it plain he said sanctify them in the truth and he clarified your word is truth that's the truth that sets us apart in jesus name Your word is true. How do you know God in Christ? By God's word, the truth. How do you receive Christ? By God's word, the truth. How are you kept and made holy by God? By God's word, the truth. You're set apart to know God in truth. God's word is truth. So you should be hearing and understanding that because God himself is truth, you can't separate God from his word. Truth comes from God. Truth is in the word. His word is truth because God is truth. And you can't distinguish between them. You can't disconnect them. That's why Romans chapter 11 extols and marvels at what God knows that nobody else knows because God is the truth. Romans 11, the the tail end of the chapter, the apostle just waxes eloquent. He says, oh, oh, what an oh that is. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. Are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This amounts to him saying, God has wisdom and knowledge, and nobody else does. You can't get it anywhere else. God tells everybody what's true. And nobody tells God anything. That's what he's saying there. That's the reality that our old friend Job finally got confronted with. After all of his righteous complaints, and it's a nice story, we'll talk about that another day, but in Job chapters 38 to 41, Job finally hears from God and not just his feckless friends who thought they knew everything. And God put Job in his place by reminding him that God alone knows everything. And nobody else really knows anything until God tells him. Chapters 38 to 40, we don't have time to read those chapters this morning. But God led off that speech with these words. I'll read verses 1 to 4 of Job 38. Huge irony on God's part. Every now and then, God comes at us with some irony. He says, it reads, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. That's the sarcasm, okay? That's the irony. Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. Ha, ha. God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. That's not sarcasm. That's just God saying, what do you know? God's saying, who's talking to me but somebody who doesn't know anything? Where were you when I made everything? Of course I know everything. Tell me what you know. Oh, wait, you don't know anything. (laughs) There's a lot of implications of confessing that God, that truth comes only from God by divine revelation. One is that all revelation is from God, but what we call the natural revelation is limited. Now, we don't have time to visit Psalm 19. makes for a great Sunday morning sermon or two, but we don't have time. But Psalm 19 tells us that the whole of creation is a kind of revelation from God. God is revealing truth in all of creation. Because all of creation speaks, put that in quotes, kind of speaks, it tells about God as glorious and powerful. But it goes on to tell us that this, as we call it, natural revelation is limited. It's limited to telling you that there is a God who you don't really know In a saving way. In a personal way. You can learn from this natural revelation. That there's a God. And if you're really thinking. You can learn that there's a God. And you're in big trouble. And that's all you can learn. From the natural revelation. Because it goes on to tell us. That the word of God alone. Is able to make you know God. And have life. The Bible is the revelation that matters, Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Every one of those expressions, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts, the commandment, the fear of the Lord, every one of those is a euphemism for the word of God that's been revealed to us, which alone can give us the truth of life. All, all truth comes from God. It can't come from anywhere else. God is the truth. Jesus is The truth, and the Bible alone has the saving truth. Now, you know, St. Augustine famously said, all truth is God's truth. And that's true, although it's subject to misunderstanding. That was his defense of the fact that whatever learning the world has, whenever the world stumbles across anything that's true, that truth came from God. It didn't come anywhere else, from anywhere else. But it was not, as some have misrepresented the saying, any kind of assertion that man is able on his own to arrive at truth unaided by God. No. Anytime man discovers truth, that truth is God's, but man never reasons his way to the truth. God has to reveal it. We have to be reminded All truth is God's truth, but all lies are the devil's lies. How will you know which is which? You won't unless God tells you in his word. All truth is in God. And God's truth for us is in the Bible. That's our commitment to the Bible. Unaided man confronting the universe alone will never arrive at truth even if he stumbles into facts he will inevitably get them wrong why is that it's because the bible teaches us that the natural man is corrupted in his thinking because of sin romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 23 it reminds us that man on his own while created by god with a capacity To know God, in his sin, suppresses the truth of God. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Sin is a big obstacle. In sin, Romans 1 tells us, man has become a fool. His mind is darkened. He exchanges the truth of God For a lie with the result that he worships the creature rather than the creator. Theologians call that the noetic effects of sin. It just means sin messes up your mind. Sin makes us not know and not able to know the truth any longer. If God doesn't step in and tell us the truth and make us able to receive the truth, we remain ignorant. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 reads this way. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. Quote, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This means that as fallen and lost people, God's truth appears foolish to us. We have no capacity to grasp it. Lost humanity cannot arrive at divine truth that has huge implications for us in terms of living by the revealed word of God. In that implication, the big category is all human reasoning must be based upon revealed reason. Most obviously, it means that all moral reasoning has to be based upon divinely revealed morality. Where else would it come from? In Exodus chapter 20, God gave to his people the law, which at its heart and core is God revealing himself, his eternal morality. The law is what it is because God is what he is. Good and evil are concepts that derive from the person of God. He has to tell us what they are. He has to reveal himself. Any supposed moral reasoning that does not start with God, as he is revealed in the Bible, is doomed to failure. You cannot know good and evil unless God informs you. You remember that in Romans 7, famously, Paul confessed that he would never have known coveting unless the law of God told him. He didn't mean he didn't know how to covet. He just didn't know coveting was wrong. It took the law of God to convict him that his coveting was sin and then to make him miserable as a coveter because it stirred up all this coveting. But he had to have God tell him that. That's obvious. Moral reasoning has to come from God's revealed morality. Less obviously, but more profoundly, all reasoning must be based upon divinely revealed reason. Oh, I'm afraid your heads are going to explode if we go down this path. I, I, I wish we could slow down and savor the impact of Psalm 119. We read a little piece of it. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. The whole chapter is a poetic exaltation of the written word of God. The biggest chapter in the Bible is the Bible chapter about the Bible. (laughs) Psalm 119, verses 89 to 96, are especially pointed in telling us that God's word alone is fixed in the heavens. God's word alone gives life. And very pointedly, it says in verse 96, I have seen a limit. To all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Which means, let me just interpret that for you. I've been shown by you, God, that all human knowledge and supposed perfection is limited. Which means finally it's worthless, because it's not perfection. But your word alone is comprehensive and encompasses everything. It is fixed, it is permanent. It is limitless, it is infinite. Now as a practical matter, what we assert is that human learning through scholarship, in philosophy, in science, or any other discipline is always doomed to failure apart from the revealed truth of God. If that troubles you, just think it through a little bit. First, true science will always agree with the Bible as would true philosophy. If science accurately lays hold of the world that God has made or philosophy accurately lays hold of the ideas that God is the author of, then that world, those ideas will always be found to be consistent with God. They will never contradict God or anything that he says because God made the world And reality always accurately reflects God. Therefore, true science can never overturn the Bible. True philosophy can never contradict the Bible. Anytime science, philosophy, or other disciplines appear to contradict the Bible, that science is wrong. Just give it time. Give it more information, reality will always conform to who God is. But there's, there's more to this. Keep thinking it through. There, are, there really are only two kinds of science. I, you're going to hate me saying this, but I would like you to come to believe this and love it. There's only two kinds of science. There is believing science, and there is apostate science. Science, when it is done by corrupted humans whose minds cannot perceive and know God's truth, will always come up short. Science done by redeemed minds, which are made able to know God's truth, will always find creation to agree with God, because it really does. The revealed character of God is the underpinning of all true all true knowledge, all true science, all true philosophy. the truth of who and what God is undergirds all other truths. I'm saying something very bold. You just need to think about it. You cannot know and be sure that two plus two equals four today and tomorrow and forever. Or that gravity will always behave predictably unless the Bible first tells you that God is faithful. Because otherwise, you would have no reasonable, no rational expectation of the consistency of mathematical principles or the presumed laws of physics. Which all exist because of him and which draw their predictable character from him. Because they are created in order to display his glory. That's why they exist. 2 plus 2 equals 4 because math exists to display God's glory. And it's just another way that the heavens are telling the glory of God. But you need the Bible to tell you that or you don't know it to be true. You can't count on it remaining true without God. How do you know two plus two is four tomorrow? God's faithful. That's why. That's why you know that. It's arrogant to think you know it any other way. And don't ever forget when you're counting on the reliability of the creation to figure everything out. God has been known from time to time to overturn the ordinary workings of the natural realm to suit his own purposes. The universe behaves consistently because God is faithful and it displays God's glory. But the universe can be made to behave differently if it suits God and if that glorifies Him, such as when He wants to part a Red Sea or turn some water into wine or cause a virgin to conceive and bear a child. Then the universe behaves the way God tells it to behave. But its consistency is derived from His consistency, ordinarily. The Bible is what you know and all the rest is what you think you know we do not say that all true information is in the Bible we say that all true information in the world is in God and derives from the truth of God and we say that God's truth for us is in the Bible we cannot arrive at truth unaided and nothing contradictory to the Bible can be true All scientific discovery must be considered to be the gift of God. But it's not new revelation. It's not independent revelation. It is improved understanding of the truth that's already revealed. And what's more to the point, no understanding can be correct unless it is consonant with the rest of God's revealed truth. Therefore, if something contradicts the Bible, it is misunderstanding, not knowledge. We can talk a lot more about this Come to the Sunday school class we're going to have in a little while for adults, and we'll talk about some of this a little more. But we're going to move from the commitment that the Bible is the word of God, the commitment to the notion that that's the only place we get our truth, to the, to the commitment that the Bible is how we live and grow. We've already listened, as Jesus told us in John 17. That he gave his disciples God's words. That they received God's words and believed on Christ. They kept God's word. And he also said that others would come to believe through their word. And that would go on and be delivered to others. The point here is that the gift of God, the life of God, which is in the word of God, and where is where that life must be found, It's the only place you can get it. The life of God has to be found in the word of God. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, not for seeking the life of God in the scriptures, but for missing the life of God in the scriptures. You might remember in John chapter 5, Jesus said, the, The Father who has sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, he said to those Jews. His form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you because you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And then he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus said, in other words, it is sadly ironic that you have not heard God's voice and you don't have his word abiding in you. Therefore, you don't believe in me. It's sadly ironic because you have the scriptures and you search the scriptures looking for life. And Jesus is like, good, right? And yet searching the scriptures for the life that is in them, you fail to believe in me. You fail to come to me. And his point is that I am the life that's in the scriptures. God's life is in Christ and it's to be found in the scriptures. It's only found there. It's only received by faith. What are the implications of saying that? Well, to be clear, we are born again by the word of Christ. First Peter puts it boldly, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We are born again by the living and abiding Word of God. We are born again because the word of God was implanted by God in our hearts and grew to life and fruitfulness. The word which is contained in all the scriptures, the word of Christ, the word of the cross, was proclaimed and held forth to us. And by God's grace, we were made able to see it and to hear it and to believe it. And it made us alive. It made us alive. Well, there is more going on. In sinners being born again then that they were transferred some information. God causes the spiritually dead to be made spiritually alive through the ministry of the word of God. It is a ministry of the Holy Spirit administered in fear and trembling by men sent to preach it with power. So that it is received for what it is. Not the word of man but the word of God able to convert souls. It is in the Bible that we read and we preach of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born under the law, who became flesh for us men and for our salvation. We preach what the Bible says, that Jesus lived a sinless and perfect life. He rendered unto God the obedience to his law that we owed God but failed to deliver. It's from this word, and it's right in here, that we declare that Jesus Christ... Suffered for our sins and bore our sins bodily on the cross. It's in the word of God that we see Jesus hanging naked on a cross. Bearing the shame and the scorn that did not belong to the sinless Savior. But to his sinful people. We see his blood run down through the word of God. And we know that his spilled blood is the life of our souls. By the word of God, we declare that Jesus is the bread that came down out of heaven. And by faith, we may eat his flesh and drink his blood. Such a word, brothers and sisters, is nonsense to a perishing world. But that word is the power of God for salvation to those who are blessed to hear it from the heart, to see it with spiritual eyes made open, to receive it. In the heart that's made new. This is the word which, when implanted by faith, is able to save your soul. I have to ask some of you who are still outside of Christ, let me just ask it bluntly Can you see Christ crucified in this word today? Can you hear the voice of Christ calling sinners to himself today? I'm not asking a mystical question. I'm asking a simple question. I'm saying, will you come to Christ by faith and be saved? Will you turn from your sins and turn to Christ? Will you admit that you're a sinner? And accept that you can never make yourself right with God. That's what the word of God says. Will you tremble at the thought of facing God in judgment. And come running for mercy while there is still time to receive it. While it's still offered. Jesus, by his word today, is holding out the olive branch. He's offering his gift of forgiveness and life. He's calling sinners to himself through the gospel. I ask you if you will come. I call on you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. This word can save you. If you believe it. Jesus will save you if you believe his word faith comes by hearing hearing comes by the word of Christ I'm asking you if you have hearing today do you hear do you believe Come to Christ and be saved. Now you may be reflecting on what I said. We're born again by the Spirit of God. And you're thinking, uh, by the Word of God. And you were thinking, I thought it was by the Spirit of God we were born again. And I want to say to you, it is both. And there's a profound revelation in that statement. The Spirit of God does what he does through the agency of the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit of God. That's how we're born again, by the Spirit. And it's how we grow in Christ, by the Spirit, using this Word to renew our minds. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the life change which believers in Christ experience is called the renewing of your mind. the life that Christ gives brings about a deep change of heart by which your old loves and your old desires give way to new loves and new desires. We turn from loving self and loving the world to loving God and loving our neighbor. But the change of heart that God brings about always comes By the mechanism of a change of mind. Right affections of heart always flow from a right grasp of truth. New life in Christ requires new thinking. It requires learning to think in a different way. Mind renewal is accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Learning to walk with Christ means learning to think better. Learning to think God's thoughts instead of yours. And instead of the devil's. And instead of the world's. That's why the apostle can... Give the Philippians a rather straightforward piece of advice about how they might grow in grace. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This exhortation means nothing less than to think about and dwell upon the things that are in the word of God. The things pertaining to Christ and his salvation. Who is true but God alone in Christ. What is honorable but the Lord Jesus Christ and his obedience. What is just but the cross of Christ. What is pure but Jesus Christ himself full of the Holy Spirit. What is lovely but our beautiful Savior. Who became the man of sorrows to bear our griefs and give us joy. Who's more excellent than Christ? What's more praise worthy than our God? Come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Sealed to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. These are the things that need to fill your mind. These are the things that need to pattern your thinking. This is not Mystical, but it's profoundly spiritual. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be led by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and following tells you to be filled with the Spirit and to walk by the Spirit. Then it tells you what that means. Stop contemplating and performing the deeds of the flesh. That's who you used to be. Start contemplating and doing the deeds of the Spirit. That's who you are now. But you need this word to tell you what all that is. You have to have your mind renewed to understand and consider that your immoralities and your anger and your strife and your divisions and all that stuff, those are all fleshly. You need to get them out of your mind and out of your practice. You need to have your mind renewed to understand and consider that your love and your joy and peace and patience and kindness and all that, those are spiritual. You need to dwell on these and practice them. You have to think that way to act that way. Non-thinking and acting is fleshly thinking and acting. Bible thinking and acting is Holy Spirit thinking and acting. You can only be led by the Spirit according to the Word of God. That's His way. Romans 8, chapter 4 tells us that we walk by the Spirit of God in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, the Holy Spirit is at work Seeing that what God says in His Word happens in you, that means that only by the Spirit's power will we think God's thoughts and live them out. And that means we're only being led by the Spirit of God as we're led to fulfill the Word of God in our lives. Spirit led means Bible obeying and Bible thinking. It doesn't mean anything else. First Corinthians ten thirteen, a favorite memory verse. Knows. Temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God will provide the way of escape so you can endure. But what is the way of escape? Just read the context. He says, all these things are written for your encouragement so that you learn not to crave evil things. You want the way of escape? Follow the word of God. That's the way of escape. We read this morning, your word I have treasured. I've stored up in my heart that I might not (coughs) sin against you. I don't have time to go on, but we are also encouraged and comforted by the scriptures. All the comfort that God has for us are, is found in the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean in a few minutes to be committed to everything we've just said, committed to the Bible? Well, I'm going to posit three things quickly, I hope. One is for you to attend. To the preaching of the word. Maybe attend is a bad word in today's language. Because I don't just mean show up. You know, attendance. That isn't what I mean at all. Maybe I should have said engage. It means to prioritize this gathering where the word of God is preached. The preaching of the word of God. Bible preaching with the Bible rightly understood is the primary way in which your soul is fed the word of God. This is where you regularly Receive the word in clarity of understanding and in the power of conviction by the Holy Spirit. He's here and he's in the preaching of his word and we anticipate him applying it with power. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Who am I? My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Who would think what I'm saying makes sense? But it was all in the demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God that's the point that's God's design for preaching the bible you ought to prioritize not only showing up but engaging in that process thoughtfully and prayerfully diligently now when i say prioritize let me just let me get personal you you ought to prioritize more than showing up Because I know that you regularly prioritize a lot of things in your life. And with those priorities, with some of them, you carefully impose margins and parameters so that nothing else competes with that priority. You know you do. I'll ask you parents, what are the things you won't let your kids do on a school night? Why do you call it a school night? Because they got to get up in the morning and go to school ready to do business at school. And you're not letting them mess around and stay up all night. You want them ready for school. Why do you not do some stuff late at night on a, what you call a work night? Because you got to get up and go to work and not just be there, but be ready to do business. Your job and your school requires that you show up ready. You can't be half asleep when you've spent half the night partying to show up at work. You know that doesn't work well. And I'm saying to you that your commitment to the Bible and the preaching of it ought to lead you to show up for church with at least that much energy. Remember that Saturday night is a church night. Get yourself ready to come and be filled. That's reasonable, isn't it? You know, if you go to Joel Dyke's house or the Distler's house, you can't go there anymore. They're in Japan. (laughs) Good luck. But go to my grandmother's house for dinner. You ought to come hungry. You're not going to be hungry for good food if you've already stuffed yourself with a bunch of junk food just before coming. And in a like manner filling your mind with all the candy of the world just before showing up for a feast on the Lord's Day and the Word of God, that's self-defeating. Show up hungry to receive and to be changed by it and have your mind renewed. And second, I would say, internalize the Word. Now, what do I mean when I say internalize? If the renewal of your mind is God's aim, that means He wants you thinking in a new way. That takes time and reflection. The word will change you, but you engage it by reflecting on it in your mind and in your heart. So for one thing, it is helpful to memorize parts of it. If you've been taught and have powerfully powerfully received a portion of God's word, it is very helpful to commit a snippet of that to memory that brings the rest of the instruction to mind. You can't read your Bible all day. But you can store parts of it in your mind to bring forward at opportune times. God, the Holy Spirit is famous for bringing those things to mind if you store them up in there. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 is worth memorizing if you want to recall the truth preached here today. All scripture is inspired by God. That's good. In Matthew 4 Four is profound when you call it to mind for the same reason. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Hebrews 4.12 is useful to call to mind that the word of God is living and active. Hebrews 3.15 is useful today if you hear his voice. And for another thing I would say on top of memorization is Learning to meditate on God's word. Now, I think meditation takes memorization to a whole nother level. I'm not talking about some mystical practice at all. I'm talking about an ordinary practice where God the Holy Spirit does something rather extraordinary. Because if mind renewal is the end that God has in view, then steep your mind in what he says. Mull it over in your head. Think about it. Muse on it. Noodle over it. Turn it over in your mind and ask yourself questions that that word answers. What does it mean to live by God's word and not by bread alone? Let me think about that. Do I live that way? How would I be different if I thought that way? Is my relationship with God's word more compelling or less compelling than my relationship with food? Would I pick the word over food if that choice were placed on me? What if I placed that choice on myself? What would I do then? Does God want to help me feel this way about his word, the way I feel about food, only more strongly? How could I do that? What would have to change about me? God, will you change me that way? You see how the meditation process Can help you. That's the arena where the Holy Spirit really jumps in and does a powerful work. That's his wheelhouse. It's when God has your attention. You're thinking his thoughts. You're mulling on his word. It's no coincidence that Jesus came up with the words he came up with in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. That's not just because he was God, but because he was a man of the word who was able to see his own wilderness experience through the grid of Israel's wilderness experience just the way the Bible had taught him to see it. You can be sure that word was hidden in his heart, and he had thought about that before. And lastly, I would say don't be ashamed of God's Words. Today's word world is pushing you to be ashamed of the notion that the Bible is the word of God. Today's world worships the creature rather than the creator. So the word of the creatures who unbelievingly explore the creation, that word becomes the guru word of our day. And it is considered ignorant and silly to think that a religious book has any bearing on how things really are. You need to trust the mind of God over against the mind of this lost world. Consider the source when you choose whom to believe. Do not be back on your heels thinking you are in a vulnerable position because you're a Bible believer. You are the one with the inside track. You are the one who knows God and knows his mind in Christ. Let God, the Holy Spirit, renew your mind through his word. Don't let the world's thinking be yours. It is not ignorant or silly to trust the Bible and to let it be known that you live according to what God says. Being a Christian demands that you be clear. You believe in the God who is the God who makes and rules all, the God who knows all, and the God who speaks. Francis Schaefer said, he is there and he is not silent. And Francis Schaefer was right. Don't let the world bully you into being ashamed of God's words. You stand on solid ground when you rely on the word of God. And when you don't, you stand on sinking sand. It's on this rock of God's revelation that Jesus Christ is building his church Don't let the forces of hell pull you off the rock and onto the sand. And to that end, don't be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, with which the whole Bible has to do. Don't be ashamed to hold forth as true the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is the one and only God-man. He came into this world to die for sinners, and that He's coming again to judge the world. That's the truth. Don't be ashamed of it. That's a word that needs to get out. Don't let your own doubtful lack of certainty lead you to be ashamed of christ i'm saying to you there's no gospel without the bible and there's no faith that doesn't involve confidence in god's word my brothers and sisters isn't it good news after all that god hasn't left us in our sinful ignorance but he has revealed himself and his great salvation to us in his holy word we worship a god who has saved us through his son, and committed the word of his grace to a book that we can trust. And I say, praise God for the word of Christ. May God give us the grace to be the people of his word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we bless you. We bless you for this holy word of yours. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the word of your grace committed to writing for us. We pray you bless and build your church on account of it. In Jesus' name. Amen.